this is one of those quintessential Eurovision song contest tunes you just can't get enough of. It was a staple on the playlist at many 80s British birthday parties and discos, or at least the ones I went to, and it made Bucks Fizz go on to become one of the biggest pop groups of the decade. I'm Genevieve and my guests today are national treasures and Eurovision icons, so here to talk about their lives after that thing they did. Please welcome formerly of Box Fizz and now simply The Fizz, Cheryl Baker and Jay Aston. Ladies, hello. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you both? I'm fine. All good. Oh, well, I've got a bit of a cold, actually, if you really want to know. <laughs> You're a little snuffly. <laughs> but apart from that, I'm fine. <laughs> awesome. Cheryl, I just have to start with you first, because I didn't know until I started researching you both that Cheryl isn't actually your real name. It's your stage name. Yes. And it was your first band manager that told you you had to change it, wasn't it? Yeah. His exact words when he, he said to me, what's your name? And I said, Rita Crudgington. And his exact words were... Well, that'll have to go. Charming. <laughs> um, but the funny thing is that I never did lose Rita Crudgington. I'm now Rita Stroud. But um, I never lost it, you know, And because all of my friends and my family said, what do we call you now? And I went, no, 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 I'm still me. I'm still Rita. It's just when I'm on stage, I'm Cheryl. And I live two lives. I wear two hats. Um, and I really like it. It's like your Beyonce with her alter ego, Sasha Fierce. <laughs> I didn't know she had an alter ego. Yes, she does. Cheryl did it first. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, though. I Honestly, I love coming home and taking Cheryl Baker off and hanging her up in the wardrobe and then getting on with being Rita Stroud. I really like it. I could never be like Cliff or Elton where they just have, they change their name and they get offended if you call them by their first, you know, their original name. I don't particularly like the name Rita. But I like being Rita. But your husband had to adapt a bit, didn't he? Because you were friends for years when he'd always called you Cheryl. And then after he married you, <laughs> he then had to start calling you Rita. Well, no, he didn't have to. I didn't ask him to. But he, it wasn't even when we got married. It was when we started going out together. And I said to him, you don't have to call me Rita, Steve. And he said, no, it's a lot easier because my friends, my, my social life outside of the band is very ordinary. I see my family a lot. I see all of my old school friends a lot. And they all call me Reet. Reet, that's the exact way you say it. It's got to have this uh in it. Reet. And it would have been more difficult for him to keep calling me Cheryl because everybody was calling me Rita. So now he doesn't think of me as Cheryl. And in fact, when he's in in the group environment and he has to then think of me as Cheryl, he has to think twice, you know, because naturally he only thinks of me as Rita. It is strange. And it's unfortunate because I'll answer to either. So, you know, it's never been an issue for me. Jay, what do you, do you call her? Do you call her Cheryl or Rita? She changes as well. She, sometimes you call me Rita. Yeah, I think yes. generally if I'm messaging her personally, I tend to call her Rita or even to Elaine RPA, I refer to her as Rita. But publicly, I kind of tend to call her Cheryl. <laughs> Mike Nolan will only ever call me Cheryl. He refuses to call me Rita. Oh, I love you. Thank you. My daughter just brought me in a cup of tea. She calls me mum. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you like me to call you today? Or rather, who am I speaking to right now? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that's a difficult one because you're talking to Rita, but you need to refer to me. I mean, we're talking about my career and the and the band and everything, so I suppose it's got to be Cheryl, really. But it's Rita who's going to be answering. 
Okay, so Jay, it's Cheryl. Let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. We all know and love you both from Bucks Fizz, winning the Eurovision Song Contest for the United Kingdom in 1981. But Cheryl, it was actually your second buy at the Cherry, as you had represented the UK at Eurovision previously in 1978 as part of the group Coco. But your first Eurovision experience wasn't so enjoyable because Coco finished 11th, and you were left pretty devastated and mostly unimpressed, weren't you, by the whole thing? Unimpressed? Blimey, that's an understatement. Um, Yeah, because... You know, at that time, the UK had only ever come first, second or third, you know. I think once we might have come fifth and that was regarded as awful. But then to be the first performers to represent the country and come as low as 11th, which was the lowest anyone had ever been, I honestly, I felt I was devastated because it was my childhood dream to do the Eurovision Song Contest and then to do it and be labelled with that, you know, lowest ever. It was just horrible. But I didn't dream that three years later I'd get the opportunity to do it again. So I've been so lucky in my career. I really have. So then three years later, Bucks Fizz was put together to compete in A Song for Europe, which for our non-European listeners, uh, is the contest held to choose the song that the UK will perform at Eurovision. And Jay, you were just 19 when you joined the group, while Cheryl, Mike and Bobby were in their late 20s. But your brother represented the UK at Eurovision the year before you. Did that kind of make it feel less overwhelming than it could have been? Um, Yes, kind of. I mean, like Cheryl, my brother and I, we had this desire to be in Eurovision and to win it since we were kids. Um, I had a little book, you know, I sort of aspirations when I'm a big girl and that, and the top was win Eurovision. So my brother went into it and he was in a band called Prima Donna. They came second. So while I watched him go through the process of rehearsals and how it all sort of panned out, it was like a bit of a, you know, a lesson in, in Eurovision. I think that really helped. And I ended up with the same agent actually as him. And that was how I got put forward to do the audition in the first place. So, yes, it was kind of in the family, if you know what I mean. <laughs> At least you knew what to expect, what you were letting yourself in for. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing was, Lance, they came second. If you don't win in that competition, it can go against you because he'd been very successful in the West End doing Cats, A Chorus Line, Jesus Christ Superstar. And then when he became like a pop singer and went into Eurovision but only came second, he actually struggled that year for work and he had to reestablish himself as a, in musical theatre. So it's, it is, you know, it, it's... You just have to go for it. And there's only ever one winner. So it's tar- It's not an easy competition to win. But you did it. Congratulations. <laughs> um, I love that Bucks Fizz was chosen as your name because it happened to be the drink Nicola Hall, the group's creator, was drinking at the time. And I guess hot chocolate was already taken. But it's a good job she wasn't drinking a Bloody Mary or a Moscow <laughs> Mule because where would we be oh, now? Yeah. What a great name for a band, Bloody Mary. Yeah. Honestly, I love that. Um, Great name. Yeah, we were very lucky. And what's even luckier is that everywhere we went, the only drink they ever offered us was Bucks Fizz. When I say lucky, <laughs> actually, we were sick of it. But now I don't mind it so much. <laughs> but it could have been something horrible. Good job she didn't like, I don't know, light and bitter or something. <laughs> yeah, dandelion and burdock. <laughs> or Heineken, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, so you won Eurovision in Dublin in 1981. And we said, of course, singing, making your mind up. And it was a bit of a smaller affair than it is today with just 20 countries taking part compared to 
40, I think we had last year. But it was still broadcast to a massive 500 million people around the world who all saw the iconic moment in your performance and still regarded as a defining moment in Eurovision history when the boys <laughs> ripped your skirts off to reveal smaller skirts underneath. Uh, but it did draw criticism after, or maybe it was sour grapes, from some of the other competing countries who said that it was just a gimmick and it was style over substance that won. Were you aware of those grumblings at the time? That must have been frustrating to hear after because, you know, you competed, you won Friend Square. I wasn't aware of it. Were you, Jay? No, I, I don't really recall that. I mean, there's a bit of sour grapes, obviously, from all the other countries. And I think there's always a bit of negativity here and there. And even if it's just completely made up, just because people like to make stories up, but um, we didn't really didn't really get that much. But we were, I mean, we were, we went that single went to number one in I think eight or nine other countries, mostly Europe. And you know, the girl who came second, uh, Lena, someone she was from Germany. I think probably she thought she was going to win. So maybe there were sour grapes from the German contingent, but actually. We followed on with loads of hit records in Germany and did loads of TV. We were always performing in Germany and Holland in particular. So um, whether they had sour grapes or not, it didn't prevent us from having lots of hit records and lots of success in those countries. Yeah. So so talking about the success, I guess that sort of criticism or, or perception about being a bit of a manufactured novelty act created specifically for, for Eurovision and the brand of lightweight pop kind of followed you a bit after, even though, as you said, you know, so successful. Boxfist scored three number one hits. Making Mind Up was number one in eight countries, as you said. Sold four million copies alone, seven top 10 singles, 50 million albums sold around the world. You even knocked the human league off the top spot. Don't you want me, baby? With Land of Make Believe, which became one of the biggest selling singles of the decade. That's not small potatoes by any means. It's not, is it? Did it feel like you were just in a constant battle to be taken seriously as a credible yeah, we were. music act? Or did it just make you more determined to prove people wrong? Yeah. yeah. People sort of saw us as a cheap version of ABBA that didn't write our own songs. And it's still the same to this day. That's kind of how they saw us. And quite often we do interviews across Europe and there'd be negativity because we were a manufactured band. But, you know, since then manufactured bands are the norm and very much so these days obviously with pop idol and all of that well yeah x factor all of that one direction girls allowed little mix yeah exactly. yeah there you go but back in the day you had to all be mates coming out of school and put an organic band together and that's what they didn't like my favorite fact about the group is that you recorded what's love got to do with it and it was intended to be on your fourth album but then it had to be shelved because this little person called Tina Turner released her version <laughs> first. What a shame. Well, well, if I'm absolutely honest, I think I prefer Tina Turner's version. <laughs> yeah. But yes, isn't it funny? She made the version that was like the original demo and somehow through a friend of mine, I heard the original demo before we even recorded it and obviously before she did. So ours was really different and we had a different producer and, well, Cheryl, you need to tell the story about what he said. Oh, it was awful, absolutely awful. We got into the studio. The, the guy was Chris Power, wasn't it? Wasn't it Chris Power? Yeah. And we went into the studio and he said, uh, well, I've got this song. He said that obviously it's a male vocal. It's been written for a male vocal. And so he told me and Jay to sit down and he recorded Mike and Bobby, in particular Bobby, 
And then it was like, oh, the girls are here. Oh, I suppose I better put a bit of oohs and ahs on. It was awful. Awful. I wanted to walk out. I wanted to smack him. Yeah. It was absolutely dreadful, honestly. It was... He was so condescending. Yeah. And the fact that, obviously, this is a male vocal. Oh, and then Tina Turner comes up and, you know, and blows the whole... Smashes it. It's huge. Yeah. It was so much cooler, but the fact that it was sung by a woman was so much cooler and of the day. Yeah. And edgy. I mean, yeah. It was so normal the way he did it, but the production he did was terribly 80s, in, in a, not in a good way. <laughs> no, not the good way, and it, it didn't even make the cut in the end, did it? You know, the nice thing is that when we got back together after so many years, I think twenty-three years, when Jay wasn't in the band, and then she came back in together with us for the first tour that we did, Jay and I sang "What's Love Got to Do with It" on that tour, oh. and we could actually say we did this before Tina Turner. And the Tina Turner biopic, she mentions that, doesn't she, on the film that yeah. fucks fizz? Not in a not in a very pleasant way, but even so, nice to get mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, your final chart hit, Heart of Stone, also went on to be a hit for Cher two years later and was the yeah. title track for her 19th album. I mean, you were trendsetters. <laughs> <laughs> we were, weren't we? Honestly. <laughs> With these iconic female singers. How amazing is that? And there's lots of our songs, actually, that have been covered by different artists. Yeah. So many. Olivia Newton-John. Celine Dion. Celine Dion, yeah. There's been so many. If you look... What Buxby's songs have been covered by other artists, you'd be amazed at how many there are. Yeah. Album tracks and everything, yeah. A sad chapter in the band's history was, was of course, the horrific accident in 1984 when your tour bus collided with a lorry and you all suffered terrible injuries. If it's not too traumatic, would you mind recounting what happened? I don't remember it, so I just woke up on the road. Yeah. That's, uh, that's all I know. Jay, Jay remembers We just it. started a, a big tour and we'd done one gig. It was the second night. And I think the next night we were due to do Wembley. So we were up in Newcastle and we were just driving back to our hotel. And long story short, there was some kind of roadworks happening on the side and it was a dual carriageway. It wasn't very well signposted. And the two drivers, our driver and the van, had both accelerated to get through the gap rather than let one another pass because it was very small space to get past. And so that's what caused it. But um, as a result, it was horrendous. Uh, Mike and Cheryl went through the, the front window, as did the driver, as did the guitarist. Mike obviously was terribly badly injured with a blood clot to the brain. He had to have major brain surgery. Um, and to this day, you know, he has sort of repercussions uh, because he lost half of his vision. And Cheryl broke her back. She can tell you about that when I had a head injury and I was paralyzed all down one side. And so it was devastating at the time because we were sort of on such a high still. It was all still going very well. And it was as though something said, no, you know, this isn't going to be the end. It's not the way that this is going to happen. So it was very traumatic and it was a long time of recovery, obviously, particularly for Mike. Mm -hmm. I mean, it took me years. I think it took us all years and psychologically. You know, it's always there. And I realised when I came back to the band and first did an interview in 2008, bearing in mind the accident was in 80, 84, it was only when I'd first properly recounted what happened that I burst into tears because I realised I'd kind of blanked it all out. And yet I'd had this thing where I was very nervous driving for years, and I still am really, but it was just a re realisation that in that interview, it all came back to me, you know. So anyone who's had a big, coach accident or a car accident it does stay with you 
And bless him, Mike has been remarkable in that he's still working and, you know, he still has to have to take medication and he's had, he can't drive and he had all sorts of problems. But it was tough, you know, for all of us. But a positive thing, if you can call it positive, well, it's the only positive thing to come out of the accident was that Cheryl, you and Mike set up the Head First charity for crash victims who suffered head injuries. Yeah, at first it was called, because we said to... um Mr. Strong, who was the um, the surgeon who oversaw the operation, we said to him, what can we do uh, to, to say thanks for saving Mike's life? And he said, we need research. We need research into brain damage because there's so much that can, needs to be done at the point of impact. Like, you know, when something's happened that's so traumatic to the brain, how can you stop it? Because I don't know if you're aware, it travels in the brain if there's a trauma of any kind, whether it's a stroke or if you've hit your head or something, it travels. And as it travels, it damages more of the brain cells. And then the blood clot appears, you know, it, it, it keeps traveling and then it gets into a big mass. And then you've got a blood clot and then you've got serious injury and, you know, resulting in possible um, loss of life, you know. So it's, it's, we learned an awful lot. I became a trustee of, uh, of Head First. At first, it was called the Mike Nolan Brain Damage and Research Fund. But in those days, if you wanted to make a donation to a charity, you had to write it on a cheque. And we realised... <laughs> a little long. There wasn't a cheque long enough to pull out. <laughs> <laughs> so we changed it to head first. <laughs> uh, and it lasted. We raised hundreds of thousands of pounds and we did some fantastic research and made wonderful in 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 line whatever the word is in roads in roads thank you to um to combating brain damage but sadly it doesn't exist anymore simply because it was a small charity there were only five of us trustees we were all getting older but i was the youngest and so they kept dying off <laughs> so we had to say <laughs> we had to say enough's enough we can't carry on anymore and so we passed all of our staff and our, we, we had um research equipment and research facilities at King's College Hospital. And so we've passed it all on to um, to the, the hospital to carry on the research themselves. But well done you first for setting it up and the work that you did during that time. Had to be done. We had to say, you know, Mike could have died. He, should, he would have died. He did die. They brought him back to life. Was it three times, Jay, they brought him back to life? Yeah, they revived him three times, yeah. Three times, yeah. So... Um, you know, we had to say thank you somehow. As I can only imagine, recovery must have been very hard for you all, not just physically from your injuries, but also, Jay, as you suggested, psychologically. And Jay, you particularly struggled emotionally after the accident, didn't you? Because you were still quite young at the time. You were only 23. Mm-hmm. I think that was that contributed to you deciding to leave the group a few months later? Um, well, there was lots of reasons why I left, but I made the decision to leave when I was in a very poor state myself. And actually, I just saw Mike being wheeled out. He doesn't actually like me saying this because he he seems to not acknowledge it. But I saw him being wheeled out sort of with, they were helping him to walk with like straps around him to make sure he didn't fall over. And it was such a a shocking sight that I couldn't possibly imagine him recovering to a point where we could work again. So I made the decision that day, but it was... It was also infighting within the band because there was always conflict between the other member in the band, Bobby, and sort of all of us and Mike and Cheryl were generally together and I was the floating boat. We were also, we had a terrible deal 
um, people were making millions out of us and we were making a fairly pathetic amount. And then when you kind of all nearly die on the road on a tour, it just all becomes very different. So with a combination of things, I was very unhappy at that point and I was um, being made to feel unhappy, you know, for various reasons. So I just thought life isn't, this isn't what, you know, life's all about. And I left, but it was like a an abrupt decision and then I had to follow it through. Mm. I mean, I'm guessing it's all water under the bridge now because you're all back together again, minus one member. But um, I do think it's interesting that to the outside world, Buxford seemed all happy and smiley. But but as you've just said, you know, it was more of a probably pressure cooker situation where relations in the band weren't actually that great and you were more kind of just co-workers than actually friends. But we worked well together on stage. It was a really good combination. And you don't necessarily need to like the people you work with. You know, if you go and work in an office, if you go and work in Tesco's, you don't necessarily get on with everybody as long as the work is done. And when we were on stage, us four, it was a really good show. Yeah. We could all sing. We could all perform. Um, we worked really well together. We looked great together. So that, if you think of it as a cake, they were perfect ingredients for the best cake ever. It's just that off stage, it was a different story. But that doesn't really matter. I mean, I still think that today, because someone asked us earlier on, you know, would you work with Bobby G again? Yeah, I would. You know, even though there's some really messy, ugly, dirty water gone under the bridge, we've got such history, this band, and we've been through such a lot, and we do make good music together. And I think that's a bit sad, really, that it's um, at least we're back together with Jay, which is amazing. You know, we've been, we were reconnected to Jay in 2008 when we did a programme called uh, whatever it was called. Pop Goes the Band. Pop Goes the Band, yeah. Pop Goes the Band. And thank goodness for that. Thank goodness for that. It was really strange doing that programme because I hadn't seen her for so long. And the only stories I knew about Jay were what I'd been told. Never heard Jay's side of the story, of course. And so to see her for the first time in decades, I wondered what my reaction was going to be. But my first instinct was to give her a hug. Didn't even think about it. It just happened naturally. And then after that, we got talking and I went, oh, that Nicola told me that you said this and that you did that. And she went, that's not what happened at all. So now I was hearing the other side of the story. There were so many blimmin' controversial things that we were being told and lies and, you know, made-up stories. And now, all these years on, we've been back together, me, Mike and Jay, working as a band since 2009. Um, which is far longer than we were in the, you know, back in the 80s. Yeah. But we're still doing it. We're still out there. We're still gigging. We're working again this Friday. We worked last Friday. You know, we've got the big gig on the 31st of March at the Indigo. We're going to be gigging all over Liverpool area because of the Eurovision in, in May, you know. Still doing TV, still making albums. How great is that? You know, it's uh, it's it's... It's like a new lease of life for us, which is fantastic when we're 192 years of age. <laughs> <laughs> Hold the thought on the stuff that's happening now because we will come to that in a little bit later. But uh, just before we leave the Nostalgia Zone, just something fun to end with. Cheryl, please share your fan story about your snotty tissue. <laughs> well, I've always got a snotty nose, you know. You can hear that I've got one now. In the, in the winter, I get colds. In the summer, I get hay fever. My mum used to say they should give you a gold watch. She's talking about Kleenex now because I insist it has to be Kleenex. No other tissue will do. And, uh, 
yeah, I was having a bit of a hay fever time in one summer and a fan said, oh, I blew my nose. And she went, can I have your tissue? And I said, no, it's full of snot. And she said, yes, but it's your snot. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. If only eBay existed then. (laughs) No, no. Could have made a fortune on snotty tissues on eBay. (laughs) Yeah, you can produce a couple a day, I'm sure. I also have hay fever and I I have no idea how I managed to produce such volumes of the stuff, like continuously. Where Where does it it come from? Exactly. I've got a cold. Where is it coming from? For goodness sake. Anyway. Okay, let's leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Hello, Genevieve here. Just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener, thank you for hitting that play button again. And if this is your first time, welcome. You have four whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on. So if you haven't already, please do follow and subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show, stick around at the end to find out how. Now, back to the latted zone. Uh, we have limited time, so apologies that this is going to be a bit of a whistle-stop tour through your lives. But we'll start with you, Jay. Um, after you left the group, you had a difficult time because legal action was taken against you for leaving while under contract. And I think there was an injunction preventing you from starting a solo career at that time too. And the legal bills meant that you were forced to sell your house and were effectively left homeless. But you were still so young when this was all happening. And you said previously that you were in a a pretty bad way. What kept you going during that difficult time? Um, Probably music. Because I think when you are at the bottom, the only way is up, literally. So I just focused as much as I could. I was always writing songs and doing collaborations with various people. And while literally my life was kind of falling apart and I had to sell my house and my car and my furniture even my clothes sometimes. Um, I'd moved back with my parents and stayed in the spare room. I just focused on music because somehow I just knew that that was the key to getting back. And obviously I did sort of hope for more things to happen for my solo albums and stuff. And I, for some reason, I still haven't actually put them out because I'm never quite content with what I've done. You know, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. But it was the music that kept me going and also good friends. You know, my I had two or three girlfriends who literally fed me, let me sleep on their sofa, put a blanket around me when I, you know, give me a hug when I needed it. So my girlfriends got me through it. And when you're having a bad time, I think people really rally. So, yeah, my friends and my music. I, I find it interesting that you say that the music got you through because you did start recording and releasing your own music. Mm-hmm. Um, you released Lamb or Lizard uh, in 1993 and Alive and Well a decade later, followed by a three-disc retrospective. And I noticed that your music is really personal. Did you just see songwriting as a sort of therapy for you to help you through those dark times? Yeah, I guess it's a kind of therapy. It's as you get out of a difficult time, you can write about it. And then you hope that Whatever you've drawn from it and how you've got out of a difficult situation might help someone else. Yeah. You also went into teaching and taught at various colleges. And in 2002, you opened your own theatre school in Kent, which is still going strong today. How do you find time to fit it all in? And how did your own experience of going to a theatre school when you were younger inform your decision on how you would run your own? Well, my mum had her own theatre school. So when I was literally a child, mum always had a dance school going on so I kind of 
did what mum did. And so I obviously I wasn't I wasn't performing. I wasn't out there as Jay Aston singing and dancing or doing West End shows or whatever. Plus, I really wanted to have a child. So to run the school was the perfect answer because obviously my husband's in showbiz as well. So he tours and he's also a teacher. But it was a complimentary thing, really, where I could be at home a lot of the time and then run the school at the weekends. But I love working with kids. I love the joy. And I'd also had an absolute, I was up to my eyes in, you know, how the negativity that you can get with an adult population, that sounds terrible. (laughs) But kids just bring in this joy and they just see things really simply. And so I actually found working with the kids really like cathartic after 13 lawsuits in my early 20s and losing everything I had, just to work with the joy of kids, which I I did that for about 12 years, and also try and guide them into the pitfalls if they wanted to go into show business and just, you know, help them. I think the thing I was best at was I wasn't big on them doing exams. It was about having fun and it was about building their confidence. And that was what I think my school was excellent at. And then sadly, in 2018, you were diagnosed with mouth cancer and you had to have part of your tongue removed. But I'm fascinated that they took part of your leg to reconstruct your tongue and your speech and singing has recovered so well. It's so amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, it's taken a while. It does swell up a bit after gigs and at night time it gets more difficult. But um, it's slowly come back and I just had to learn Yeah, I speak slightly differently to how I used to. I kind of have to think about what I say more rather than just talk. But saved my life, so it's it's all fine. I'm still here. Hmm. And I have to ask, how's your daughter Josie? Because she was suffering from meningitis in the last year, and she was quite poorly. She's making good progress. She was um, had to rush her into hospital last March. She had a high temperature, and I just couldn't get it down. And she was like, really not well. And she, I kept her in my bed with me to keep an eye on her because I wasn't, I just, I couldn't work out why I couldn't get the temperature down with all the normal stuff. And we'd called the, the 101 and they said, we'll send an ambulance. So we called the ambulance at six, 11 o'clock, they haven't arrived. Two o'clock, they haven't arrived. And she was really getting worse. And I just said, right, I turned all the lights on and then I could see these just four little brown dots in her arm. And I knew it was meningitis because my husband nearly died from meningitis 20 years previously. So I was always very aware of the symptoms. So I rushed her to A&E. Fortunately, it was relatively empty in there and I got her through fairly quickly. And she was on a drip and within an hour her body was covered in the rash and that next morning we were given 50 50 whether she would survive and they had to put her into a coma just unthinkable as a parent to have to go through that yeah she's making really good progress her kidneys were very badly damaged they failed so to begin with we had nothing and then they went to six percent and slowly over the last nine months she's now at 22 percent kidney function so We're just praying, you know, that it will carry on in the right direction. But it is possible she might need a transplant later on. You know, we don't know. Well, we wish her well and that she is on the road to recovery and gets back to good health soon. Yeah. Um, Cheryl, on to you now. Uh, You left Bucks Fizz in 1993 to focus on starting a family and your twin daughters, Kyla and Natalie, were born shortly after. But in tandem with the music career, you, of course, had started a TV career and you presented two shows that I loved watching growing up. Eggs and Baker 
on a Saturday morning. Mm. I don't remember there being any cookery shows for kids at that time at all. So I loved that. That's why we did it. And, um, and, re- <laughs> and record breakers alongside the legend that was Rory Castle. And mm. you broke quite a few records on the show. But the one that caught my eye, which was done on TVAM, was your attempt to break the record for the longest on-screen kiss, which you successfully no. did with Giles Brandreth <laughs> for three and a half minutes. Was that a hard day at work? Oh, I tell you what, it was hard day at work because he'd just drunk a cup of coffee just before hand so I had this coffee taste straight away and then he burped oh my god <laughs> it was really unpleasant it was so unpleasant oh, no. honestly and I was like a stuffed doll I was refusing to move I'm just thinking let this be quick let this be quick but because I wasn't moving because we had the the show was going on and we were in a little box in the corner on the screen so that people could see that we were still kissing and so he started running his hands through my hair to show that we were still you know alive and kissing it was the most unpleasant I love Giles Bradrith I really do I think he's a fantastic broadcaster writer and a really lovely man but he's not the best kisser in the world (laughs) (laughs) it's the longest three and a half minutes of your life (laughs) I know why I did it because we'd had all the success with Bucks Fizz but we weren't making successful singles anymore. And so our gigs were kind of getting smaller and smaller, less and less. And I was doing TV, but there was, I don't know, a hiatus in the TV presenting thing. And Jill Shirley was our manager and my manager as a personal, like as a TV presenter. And she went, Cheryl, we need to up your profile. We need to get you some TV. And she got me that. <laughs> we think that you should break the world record for the longest on-screen kiss. That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> but Giles Brandreth, why couldn't they pick Paul Young or someone, you know, <laughs> Simon Le Bon? Why would you... Charles Brandon. The thing that I love was that Patsy Kensett was also guesting that day and she looked just totally bemused by the whole thing that was going on, even suggesting that maybe some tongue should be used. Oh, no. <laughs> Spice oh. it up. Oh, my God. I'm never going to get that out of my memory now. <laughs> Sorry to say you're no longer the, the record holder. It's now six minutes, 44 seconds. Oh, is it really? Well, I'm not going to try and break it. <laughs> With Giles again at least yeah <laughs> you better get steve on the case <laughs> um, you also foray into musicals you starred in footloose in the west end amongst others and also participated in a few reality tv shows like pop stars opera star and dancing on ice and you also now present a show on great british radio which did you learn the most from and why learn the most from oh uh oh that's a tough one because you see i don't like performing in musicals I'm obsessed with musicals I adore musicals but to perform in them fills me with dread and even though I did Footloose for a year I would be in the wings to the very last show that I did I would be in the wings just before going on stage going right my lines right my lines because you know the show depends on you remembering what you're doing, where you're going and what you're saying. Mm. And um, I remember I did a play once, uh, Dial M for Murder, and it was, I had to play, believe it or not, I had to play this posh bird. And I was doing, <laughs> I was in a conversation with the guy I was on the sofa and I couldn't remember my line. And I looked at him and the fear in my face and the audience was out there and he, thankfully, you know, came in and, and said whatever my line was and, and made it look as if 
it was fine and I carried on. But my, it's just like you just feel like I just need to have a poo <laughs> right now, this very second. I need to have a poo. And it happened as well in the West End in Footloose. I had a solo song called Can You Find It In Your Heart? And this one time, it was just me and the piano, and the piano would go, bung, 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 bung. And I would go, can you find it in your heart to forgive her? And then my mind went completely blank, and I couldn't remember the next line. And I had an audience full of people in the West End, and I couldn't remember it. And the pianist kept going, bung, 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 bung. And I was like, oh. And so then... What did I do? I started laughing. I did the chimpanzee thing where if you're afraid, you start laughing. Oh, and I went into hysterical laughter <laughs> in the West End, honestly. So, yeah, as much as I'm very happy that I've done, I've done quite a few musicals. I'm quite happy I've done them, but I don't do them out of choice. I do them out of necessity. <laughs> <laughs> you've um, you've been quite honest about your career and, and about how nothing is guaranteed in this business we call show. So you have to take work where you can get it because you never know when it's going to end. And you did a secretarial course at school, so you could always get a job as a secretary if you had to. Yeah. And I find it really interesting that you've said that twice in your career you've had to go back to doing it, including quite recently in 2016. Yeah, I did. There was not much work going on. I mean, there weren't many gigs and I had bills to pay. Still, I still, to this day, have a mortgage. Steve wasn't getting any gigs. My husband is a musician. And so I rang a friend of mine who has his own company and I said, do you need any part-time secretarial work? And he said, um, "He said, well, I need someone to do some cold calling for me to try and, you know, generate more business. And I went, well, I'm your girl then. So, so I went back and I went in as Rita Stroud. So I would ring people and go, hello, my name's Rita Stroud from blah, 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 blah. And I'm wondering if you'd like some. Your telephone voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he sat opposite me and he said, if only they knew. You know, they were talking to Cheryl Baker. But I needed to earn a living. And so I did it. And I'm not ashamed to say so. You know, I'm, I've never been a scrounger. I think that if you work and you get a fair wage, then that's all there is. You know, whatever your job is, if you're happy to do it. And I, it was something that I'd studied for. I could type. I could do the invoices. I could answer the phone. I could make phone calls. I could make the tea. I could earn myself a decent living until the next gig came along. So, yeah, and I did it, as you say, I did it once before, years before that. Same sort of thing, really. It's, and I was actually, I was gigging at that time. I was singing in the Playboy Club in uh, Park Lane. And over daytime, I was working at, uh, what was it called? Alan Steen Shipping in Lime Street in the, in the city. And I used to, at my lunch break, I used to, I was typewriters in those days, I used to have an hour's nap on my, I used to use my typewriter as a pillow so that I could just have an hour's sleep because I knew that that night I would be singing again in the Playboy Club. So, uh, yeah, not ashamed to say it either. So if we talk about now, obviously you, you said you reunited in 2009, have been touring together and releasing new music ever since under a range of different names, but you have been the fizz since 2016 due to a very well-publicised legal battle that you've had over the name Bucks Fizz with Bobby G, which kind of kicked off at a time when neither of you were in the band. So how did you feel as as insiders, but now on the outside kind of like looking at all this drama, which I guess wasn't directly affecting you at the time, but continues to affect you to this day. It was, it's a funny old situation, isn't it? Because um, being in Bucks Fears, having won the Eurovision Song Contest, and then someone says, 
someone who was in primary school when you won the Eurovision owns the name and refuses to let you use it, uh, it hurts. It hurts to this day, in my opinion. The crazy thing is, and I think where we were all kind of in a way duped, is when you kind of Google or you have a look at what it is to, to sort of go against a trademark, you are considered to be passing off as an art, you know, as an artist if you're passing off yeah. as a different brand. And we were like, come on, we're three original members. How can we be considered to be passing off when there's this girl who was in primary school when we won Eurovision and sold millions of records and everybody knew our faces and we toured the world? How on earth can they think that she's Bucks Fizz and that we're the ones passing off? So we just laughed at it a bit because it was like, come on, they've got, they've got to see sense. Who could believe that? We didn't dream that we would lose. That's how it went. Mm. And the only way we could redress that madness is to go to high court. Well, the minimum we'd be looking at is £100,000. Yeah. And it's like just to walk in the door. Yeah. The people that win are the lawyers, really, isn't it? Millions. Millions. And we'd probably lose our homes. And I've already lost one once trying to get out of Bucks Fizz. And now I'm trying to get back into it. It just wasn't going to happen, you know. Well, Bucks Fizz or simply The Fizz, your fans have been amazingly supportive over the years. And you've had great comeback success since starting with your uh, first album as The Fizz, the F to Z of Pop in 2017, which went top 30. And you released your fourth album, Everything Under the Sun, last year. Um, and your songs do so well on the Heritage chart, which people listen if you're over 35 and haven't heard of it, I urge you to go and have a look at it because I think you will like it. Uh, but I love that listening to your new music, it still sounds like Bucks Fizz. It has that retro sound while still sounding modern, but it's exactly what you would expect from a Bucks Fizz album. How have you managed to achieve that? <laughs> I think Mike Stock was, um, he had a completely digital studio, and then he just realised that people are more and more going back to that 80s sound. And so he's, you know, he's got a few bob. <laughs> he just brought in all the old analogue stuff as well. And so, and he brought back his mixer who used to um, mix all his Stock Aiken and Waterman songs, and he gave us that 80s sound using, he did use digital technology, and they used the old keyboards and the old drum machines and the, old, the sound that made the 80s and produced this, I think, fantastic album. Personally, I would think it's the best of the four that we've done with him. I think they're great songs. And the song that's currently at number six in the chart, I think, is my favourite. It's called Treasure Forever. So it's amazing that we're still out there recording and making fantastic music. And Jay, you're still uh, you're still responsible for the group's look, as you were back in the day? <laughs> Yeah, well, I love fashion and also it's a bit of musical theatre in a way. So every song, I always immediately get ideas for clothes, costumes, video concepts, images. And so it's to me, it's part of the packaging. Cheryl's like department is definitely harmonies and she just hears the harmonies. I have to learn them. But for me to dress us and do the dance routines is like second nature, whereas Cheryl's more towards the studio. So it's just, yeah, it's just part of part of the job. And then Mike Nolan is just the cherry on top. <laughs> <laughs> he just does what he's told. <laughs> well, he doesn't actually. But, 
Um, and although there was a, a blip during COVID when the world stood still, you're still out and about touring, doing summer festivals. And as you mentioned, you've got your upcoming show at Indigo at the O2 in March. But Cheryl, I was surprised to hear that you still suffer really badly from nerves generally when you're performing. I mean, you kind of alluded to it a bit there with the musicals, but what do you do to prepare? Does it get any easier once you're on stage? We did our 30th anniversary at the Palladium and... I think because of the excitement of it all and everything, I had a migraine that morning and it absolutely wipes me out. And I remember we were staying in a hotel uh, just off Piccadilly and I got out of bed at 6am and I was holding my head, you know, because just to lift it or to see bright light or anything was so painful. And I had to find a chemist where they would give me my migraine um, relief. And it was because of the fact that we were doing that gig that night I don't know if you remember, Jay. Yeah. We got to the Palladium and I just had to go into a, a dressing room and lay on the settee in a darkened room. I was very worried you were going to actually be able to do it. Yeah, me too. Because we had a big set and we had a load of dancers and we had brass and we had so many, you know, musicians on the floor. And so it was a, you know, it's a short space of time to get it all together for the gig. And then I was just worried that you wouldn't get through it. So I'm very pleased you did. Yeah, me too. And when we first appeared... And the lights came on us and the cheer that went up was phenomenal. Yeah. And it made me cry. And so you still get it, you know, you still get that buzz. It's never going to become just another job being in this band. It's a really special band to be in. I'm so I'm so happy that we're still doing it. And so I'm really looking forward immensely to doing the Indigo. But I will definitely be um, shitting myself just before I <laughs> <laughs> It's not too traumatic for you. <laughs> Cheryl and Jay, it's been so lovely speaking with you today. Thank you. Long may Thank the you. fizz continue. Thank you very much. It's a great interview. Huge thanks again to Cheryl and Jay for joining me. We had such a giggle. I hope you are laughing along with us. As we mentioned, The Fizz are playing at the Indigo at the O2 in London on the 31st of March. Do go and buy your tickets now for what I'm sure will be a fabulous night. Plus, you can find out all the dates for their upcoming shows throughout the year at thefizzofficial.com. And of course, their latest album, Everything Under the Sun, is out now. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support it, please visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. Every penny helps as I do make and fund this podcast myself. And as ever, do please tell a friend or share it on social media so others can discover and listen too. Hit that subscribe or follow button. It's totally free. Leave a nice review because people are more likely to listen if someone else says it's worth it. And do say hello and follow me on social media. Just search for Celebrity Catchup and you'll find me. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.